0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 120 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is our editor-in-chief, Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you today? I am amazing. How are you? I'm doing all right. Excellent. I'm so glad to hear it. Welcome back after last week's unusual special episode from MoogFest.
0: I enjoyed that. That was a really interesting listen.
1: You know, after I recorded that, there were a number of other interviews that I got with artists who performed there. And they were talking a lot about how the Mac and the iPad play roles in their performances. Um, And I I got a number of them to name which apps they use on iPad, but also which applications they're using on macOS that help enable their expression. And uh, we're not going to run them this week, but we may run those at a future date.
0: Yeah, no, I think that would be great. You know, even if it's a special episode or something, I I know with WWDC coming up, we have a lot of people very excited to hear about iPhone and iPad and iOS 11 and all that. But uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, as you know, I really enjoy... Um, unique applications for iOS devices, especially the iPad, um, kind of taking advantage of the ability of the device to be the computer or instrument or whatever that you need in that moment. Uh, I think that that's the future potential of the iPad. And so to hear about people doing cool and interesting things like that with these uh, modern devices is pretty exciting to me.
1: For me, it's, it's about the user. And in this case, the user is a professional user using these tools for their their living. And right. that that kind of focus on the user and and their focus on accomplishing things with these tools, it was really interesting for me. And some of them were, um, well, you know what, I'm going to save it for another time. I won't let on any more, but we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll hold that in our back pocket. Okay. And we'll share that soon. Instead, let's return to our, our usual thing. Let's talk a little bit about iPhone 8 or the rumored iPhone 8. So, I'm looking at a series of images that were posted to Chinese social media on Wednesday, that is uh, yesterday, Mm -hmm. that appear to show something that looks like an iPhone 8, but differs from some of the rumors that we've had. So, help me understand what it is that I'm looking at. What, What do we think that I'm seeing here? Because what I'm seeing is the vertical camera arrangement that we've talked about. Uh, I'm seeing a, a gloss black back that looks like it could be glass, and I'm seeing what looks like in these ones, a fingerprint sensor below the Apple.
0: Yeah, this is um, the uh, continuing back and forth of will the fingerprint sensor be embedded beneath the display, or will it be on the back of the device? Um, this latest mock-up, leak, prototype, whatever you want to call it, Uh, shows a not quite edge-to-edge display, but a a significantly larger display than um, we're used to seeing on iPhones to date with smaller bezels, and then a, what appears to be, a home button uh, beneath the Apple logo on the center of the device on the back. Um, There have been conflicting reports saying that Apple is potentially having trouble putting the Touch ID sensor into the display on the front, therefore they may be forced to put it on the back. Uh, I remain skeptical of that. Uh, if, I think if they did that, it would be a big mistake for the usability of the device and also just for you know functions like apple pay and and things like that that Apple's pushing very hard and the simplicity of it all. So, um you know, it may be that technical limitations force them to put it on the back, but I, I find that would be hard to believe. Having said that, this leak is out there. So who knows? I've also seen some speculation that, Potentially, the uh, uh, edge-to-edge but not OLED display with Touch ID on the back could be for the so-called iPhone 7S models um, and serve as a way to kind of upsell the iPhone 8, which is expected to launch at the same time. Uh, There's been no evidence to support that, um, but it's just kind of been idle speculation that's been going around there that I think is interesting. So. Um, we'll see. I, I will say that when I look at this leaked device on the front with the uh, thin uh, chin, so-called chin and forehead on it above and below the screen with, with the cameras and the earpiece, it does remind me a lot of, a, of an Android or a Samsung phone from the front, um, which is interesting and uh, would be, um, it would be odd for Apple to not differentiate themselves from the competition in some way.
1: Well, so what is what is Apple's vision of the ideal iPhone is, I guess, a question here, right?
0: I mean, I think that the iPhone and the iPad, to the same extent, the, the vision that, that Apple has, and, and they've communicated this you know, through marketing and through comments and public and stuff, is that the device gets out of the way, right? It, it's just a screen, and it can be anything at any given time. Like, Apple... Uh, has prided itself on the fact that there are no logos on the front of the iPhone or iPad. It's just the device and the home button, the screen and and that's it. And, you know, I think that Apple's uh, science fiction ideal device would show nothing on the front except for a screen. There would be no visible earpiece. There would be no visible camera. uh, There would be no home button, nothing. It would just be a screen that you interact with and the elements that you need would show up as needed. Uh, technologically, we're not there yet, but you know, if you want to think 10 years down the road to where a phone can evolve to, um, this is certainly a trend that's going on now in the market, as you see with the edge-to-edge display on the latest Samsung Galaxy S8. Um, the, the question is, can Apple do something different and beyond what Samsung has done uh, and what they've already brought to market? Uh, we will see. Um, but it, it is going to be very interesting as this gets closer to launch because we're still unsure about some key elements here. Uh, and, and I think that the home button is a very crucial part of that because I can say personally, if the home button is on the back of the device and I got to like, you know, I mean, first of all, it's going to ruin cases for people. It's going to, I mean, it's just like everything about this just seems very weird to me. Right. Yeah. Um, if, if that is is the way that it is, and it's a bigger phone with Touch ID on the back and all that kind of stuff, I, I just won't buy it. Wow.
1: I mean, we, we've seen in years past, there have been mock-ups of devices that have had uh, keyboards on the back of the device, and you just had to learn how to touch type yeah. while holding the device. And that was, that was clearly ludicrous. The problem that I have here is not so much that the home button is on the back of the device or that Touch ID is on the back of the device because I've held Android handsets that have a fingerprint sensor on the back. Mm-hmm. The issue for me is that when, when I come to payment terminals and I use Apple Pay, there are occasions where I have to get the phone very close to the payment terminal. And if I have mm-hmm. to put my fingerprint on the back, the gap between, that my hand creates between the phone and the terminal is, interferes with, with payment there.
0: One thing that I think about, too, when I use my phone, and, and a lot of this is just habits that you get from from using the phone and the form factor and the size that it is. So you have to realize that some things are inevitably going to change. However, when I grab my phone, and you know, I have a smaller SE, it's very light, and I can literally pinch just the bottom of the phone with my between my index finger and my thumb um, and pick it up out of my pocket and unlock the phone while I'm doing that because I know exactly where the home button is. Um, I can also prep... Apple Pay for it by, you know, double tapping it as I'm bringing it out of the pocket, stuff like that. Um, that's the kind of functionality that would not be as simple when I have to cradle the phone and get my finger, you know, centered on the back of it and kind of feel for it and stuff like that. Now, having wow. said that, it's possible that, you know, with use I've heard from people that have like uh, uh, you know, the the uh, Google Pixel phone that has a touch ID or their own fingerprint sensor on the back. They say that you get used to it. and It's not that big deal. And some people actually say they prefer it um but there are a lot of reasons that i prefer having the home button and and touch id on the front of the device and i would be very very unhappy if that changed
1: yeah cradling the nexus 6p for example
0: when you pick it up
1: your finger naturally falls to the center back where the the fingerprint sensor is Mm -hmm. so that's not not a bad thing it's not unnatural but you wouldn't be able to pinch it to pull it out of your pocket for example
0: Yeah, it's just, you know, this whole idea of, like, choking up further on the phone, too, and that would be how you'd go. Like, you're going to be pressing the back of it to go. I I just don't.
1: It is is an unusual shift, if it's anything at all. And it's it's different when you use an Android phone as well, although it's not never the home button. It's just a fingerprint sensor on the Android devices.
0: Right, and and that's part of it, too. So are we going to separate the home button from the fingerprint sensor with the next one so that we can have the interface work the same for people. I mean, like, there, there are way too many questions in the air at this point that make me still very skeptical that Apple would move the home button to the back of the device. I think that it could be if they were forced to go in that direction, because I honestly don't think that they want to go in that direction. I think if they were forced to go in that direction because of technical limitations, it could be a misstep for them. Because you know that they want to put it within the screen on the front of the device. You just know from the comments that they've made about how they view the iPad and the iPhone as a blank canvas to be whatever it needs to be at that moment. Um, I think that you know they don't want to hide this stuff on the back of the phone or have you feel for it or stuff like that. It's just not how the device is meant to work. And um, it, it, it might be maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but if they did that, uh, it might be a tactical error for them um, in dynamically changing the way that the iPhone is used. And then only temporarily if they were to fix it in a couple years and finally embed it in the front of the screen, it'd be like, oh, remember that mistake we made? Well, now we're back, you know. So I, I, I think that I would rather that they not do an edge to edge display and continue to have the home button below than to put it on the back. Right, But we
1: may be going too far down this path because there's nothing that says that this mock-up is the real thing. this, right, this image that we're seeing could very well be someone's idea of what they're understanding, and it's just the the rumors feeding themselves.
0: And, and all of that is why I say I, I say all that because I don't believe it they'll do it. I just don't right
1: It, it also the, we, we've seen several drawings that have indicated something in that position. There is, there's nothing that says that can't be a wireless charging module, correct. People are presuming that that's fingerprint sensor and or home button. And we really don't know for certain, do we?
0: What if the wireless charging technology is the same contact-based magnetic thing that works with the Apple Watch, but also works with accessories? So we saw this last year, and there was some speculation that was kind of interesting. And this is – you make a very good point there. This is an area where they could do something very unique to the iPhone, where uh, last year we saw um, smart connector uh, pins essentially on the back of, uh, leaked, uh, uh, iPhone mockups and it never came to be. But one of the ideas that we had was because the smart connector is magnetic, perhaps maybe Apple could, uh, you know, create some accessories that would attach to the back of the device and do something unique. Um... So this is another example where if that isn't a Touch ID sensor and perhaps it's a magnetic connector, much like the uh, charging clasp for the Apple Watch, uh, imagine if you had a Apple battery case that rather than um, be something you have to slide the phone into and do all this stuff with, you just kind of snap it on there and then it magnetically attaches and automatically recharges the phone and does all that. Uh, You have potential for some really cool stuff that could be done there.
1: Well, I think this also represents a change for furniture companies, for example. You know, I know we've got an Ikea story coming up later on in the show, but if you've got wireless charging and you know that it's going to be a a, a function of a large number of handsets that are out there, then you can go ahead and incorporate that wireless charging capability into furniture. Mm -hmm. And now when you buy your next computer desk, it's got a place to charge your iPhone built into it. Right. Right? You know, I, I, I... I may be the only person that thinks that's kind of neat, but I like the idea of it.
0: It's neat. Yeah, it's it's there's it's growing pains at this point. Like uh, my parents bought a uh, a Toyota Avalon or something, and it has a a, a contact based charging thing in it. Uh, And of course, it doesn't work with an iPhone, but uh, they said you can buy an adapter for a smaller iPhone to get it to work. Those those chi chargers or whatever. Um, But it doesn't the the space is not large enough to accommodate an iPhone seven plus. So even if you bought the thing, it's like you can't even physically fit the phone in there. What were they thinking? Who designed this? So that's the thing is that car
1: manufacturers have a history of being 10 years behind. And they're catching up in terms of things like Android Auto and CarPlay. Right. But for everything else, they're, they're in this rough space where they're learning the difference between car building cycles versus other product cycles, right? Car building cycles happen every 10 years with a five-year refresh, maybe a little bit sooner than that sometimes. But, you right. know, it, it, you see these models go on for ages and ages, right? 2003 to 2007, and then another model changed from 2008 to 2000, let's say 12, and then from, uh, from 13 to 17. So you at least get four or five years out of a car and maybe a refresh cycle where they, they facelift it but product development for the phone happens a lot faster than that. Product development for everything else, including the self-driving aspect or or uh, telematics, those things happen a lot faster as well. So they're getting better about in-car entertainment, but when it comes to something like the wireless charging pad in Toyota Avalon, they thought it was something cool, but they couldn't account for the incredible growing screen size of devices. That wasn't something that was on their horizon. And so now <laughs> Toyota's going to be stuck with that for another four years.
0: Which is crazy because most of these phones now are getting bigger. I think like 40% of iPhones are sold are the 7 Plus. So it's like, oh yeah, yeah. what were they thinking?
1: You know, Toyota has is, is been one of the slow ones on the uptake anyway, right? Toyota didn't want to get into Apple CarPlay. They were, they're were they not doing it as far as I can remember. Or if they are doing it, they're among the last to get on board. Um. The last I knew at CES was that they weren't doing it.
0: Yeah, I don't think they are.
1: Yeah. So, it, it, you know, when, you, when you talk Toyota, that's that's one of the things you have to take into account, is that um, when it comes to in-car technology for the user, that it's, it's kind of very much, uh, let's say, a world that's not very accommodating to the iPhone, for example. Right. You know, you can charge, sure. You can play music over Bluetooth, but uh, that's about as far as you get, right? The the uh, wireless charging pad, like you say, doesn't work. Right. And and it also doesn't work for a lot of the Android phones out there as well.
0: Oh, and that raises a question, too. As Apple starts to embrace this technology, do they go with open established standards or do they bring their own new technology to market? And this is a constant struggle for Apple. It's a PR nightmare for them every time they do it because, you know, people are going to complain because that's what they do. But you, you have to weigh as a company, can we do it better? Is our way going to be of more value to consumers or should we just go with the established standard? And so you see that with you know the new MacBook Pros uh, going with USB-C and Thunderbolt 3 and ditching MagSafe in, in that case to actually have their own uh, to, to 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 have to not have their own port on there to to adopt the, the standard port for charging for for plugging in devices all that um, you know that's something that they weighed internally and decided well we'll just go with the open standard that everybody's going to be adopting um, and you know right but there have been other
1: times and other cases where they've gone with something that's unique to them and adoption is a lot less because they're trying to deliver a greater value That's the trade-off, is they can deliver greater value to the user that takes on that technology, but that uh, it's it's going to be slower to adopt. Right. You know, I think HomeKit is an example of that, where HomeKit is a superior technology for home automation in many ways, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when it comes to security, which is one of the things that we talk about with home automation, right? You know, people not taking over devices on your network. But HomeKit stands at about 5%. I don't know pretty cool well i want to take a moment and talk about casper mattresses Hmm. uh neil has this mattress and and i've thought about getting one it's it's an obsessively engineered mattress they they even show them at ces the electronics show for crying out loud at a a really fair price it's it's a supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right amount of sink and the right amount of bounce and time magazine thought it was one of the best inventions of 2015. And you can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's really quickly the uh, become the Internet's favorite mattress. And you our listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash insider and using the offer code insider terms and conditions may apply, but Neil loves his. So if, if you uh, don't enjoy your current bed, please consider trying out a Casper. Right. Let's keep this going. So we're going to keep this in mind. We'll come back to HomeKit a little bit later on. Um, we have an analyst we have uh, Timothy Curry from Cowan & Company, who issued a note to investors on Wednesday saying that Apple is working on increasing yield of the uh, Touch ID solution embedded in the screen for a rumored iPhone 8, but that that's going to hold up mass production somewhat. He thinks that there are going to be some yield issues, and but he's not talking about that huge delay. He's still talking about the October-November time frame.
0: Yeah, we're looking at you know a later iPhone launch than usual. I, I would guess that even if it is later than than you know the late September timeframe, uh, it will still be announced in September. Um, it might be one of those things where they announce it and you know instead of showing up two weeks later, it shows up four weeks later, maybe even six weeks later. Um, But generally speaking, analysts like Timothy Curry and others aren't too concerned about it because they see all these devices being sold in the fall. Anyhow, whether some of them are in the September quarter or they get pushed back to the December quarter or even past Christmas, if Apple can't manufacture enough, uh, eventually it's going to hit the market and it's going to sell. So that's really the main concern. I mean, if, if this—so, uh, you know, there are other takes on it. I, I think that—I uh, don't remember which one it was. I think it may have been um, UBS uh, said that they think that the iPhone will cost uh, $870 starting price. The iPhone 8 was their guess. Um, th- they're saying $100 more than the Plus models. it's so, not a bad guess. Yeah, not a bad guess, and it would fit right in line, right? You'd have the $650 phone, 770 for the Plus and then 870 for the for the eighth the tenth anniversary, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it, it makes logical sense. Um, and the thought is that you know they'll start with the 64 gigabyte capacity, and then to help justify the high price, and then jump up to like a 256 or something like that. Um, I mean, you know, if if they sold some crazy OLED edged edge screen phone with like a 512 gigabyte flash storage and and all that for like now you're just talking fantasy stuff well but if they sold that for like 1300 dollars, would you buy it um
1: can i sell my liver first
0: (laughs) i mean think about it right how yeah you know you use your phone more than you use your computer everybody does now true and it used to be you know, back in the 90s, early 2000s, even if you weren't buying Apple gear, if you were just buying a PC and you got a decent desktop or, or geez, even a laptop back in the 90s, you were going to drop $2,500. $2, $1, 1200
1: yeah. 3 grand,
0: yeah. So, you know, and and a dollar was worth more back then. So when you think about how cheap consumer electronics are now, this idea that you could charge $1,200 for an iPhone is actually not that crazy. Um and when you consider what you get out of it, how you use it, etc., cetera, um, I don't see it being that far-fetched of a concept. And I think that if Apple were to sell that hypothetical iPhone 8, you know, half a terabyte of storage on it, I could see them selling a lot of those phones for twelve, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400. That wouldn't be that far-fetched of, a, of an idea to me. And I think that... Apple has been consciously pushing in that direction because they see people are willing to pay for it. The average selling price of the iPhone continues to go up, even as devices like the iPhone SE are are at bargain basement prices. Because people use this device every day, they see the value in it, and they're happy to spend it.
1: What's interesting about that comparison is that people replaced their PCs on a much longer timeline. right? You'd get a new computer every three years. Right? Right you get a phone every year to every two years
0: mm-hmm.
1: so if you're getting if and especially if you're spending that much money on it you tend to be the person that replaces it every year as well I would think it, the people who are buying SEs are the ones that keep them longer
0: is it, is it like Apple's like a, a crack dealer or something like you got hooked uh, on the early days of you know fast uh, upgrades year over year as the technology improved but also carrier subsidies to get you on a two year time frame and now you know you're jonesing for that new phone and they got you hooked and now instead of the carrier helping to subsidize it or whatever you're just paying all out of pocket uh
1: pretty much or using the apple upgrade plan where it's you, you you buy in you pay across the year and hope that they have one for you when it comes time
0: and remember, you know, back to when you get a new PC every three years, even when it was getting a lot faster, that was pretty much it. You were just getting a faster PC. There, there weren't, like, a lot of new features coming to computers back then. The interface was pretty well established. Um, we didn't have fast enough internet for things like video chat and stuff like that. Nowadays, you know, uh, in, in many ways, the limitation is in the hardware because the internet is fast enough always connected capable enough the apps can you know do things it's just a matter of of new functionality coming through the hardware that that makes it more exciting than upgrading your pc in many ways it's, right. it's when more you, when it's you had
1: to upgrade the pc right it was about the cpu and about the graphics processor
0: mm-hmm.
1: right you had to upgrade the uh, the cpu to keep current on whatever system requirements were and the gpu was required because well goodness knows that's where a lot of the power comes from now
0: anyway yeah it would be you know, what how fast does it boot would be what you'd be worried about and uh, what's the battery life if it's if it was a laptop and how many frames per second and frames crisis? per second would you get on a game? Yeah, and, and that was about it. But when you think about a phone, it's like, my camera is so much better. Well, now I have 3D touch. You know, the screen is better. Touch ID is faster. Now it's got stereo speakers. Um, even as the upgrades become uh, less crazy and, and, and less uh, more advanced every year over a year, um, they're still big in, in many ways that, that drive people to want to upgrade.
1: Yes. So 10.5-inch iPad. We've we've got a render of a ten and a half inch iPad, uh, rumored as an iPad Pro. Mm-hmm. The person who's citing this rumor claims that it's a hundred percent confirmed. It's already in mass production. <laughs> There's no room for error. Um, that's a little more confident than we are usually,
0: isn't it? It is, but uh, the rumors all seem to be pointing toward this device being announced at WWDC. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to see it at WWDC. I think that Ming-Chi Kuo gave it a 70% chance of being announced there. I don't know where he gets those odds from, but um, I would say we should probably expect the 10.5-inch iPad at WWDC. The the question that I have about that and the problem that I have is we have these rumors of this new design 10.5-inch upgrade from the 9.7-inch the question becomes, what happens to the 12.9-inch? Because they just released it a year and a half ago. Um, a little over that, but um, they've only done one version of the 12.9-inch. Uh, the first version of it. It's due for an upgrade. It, I'm guessing it wasn't the biggest seller. I'm guessing uh, it was kind of a niche device. Um do they think that the ten point five inch is a happy medium and is the one size to rule them all, in much the same way that the twelve inch MacBook superseded both the thirteen inch and eleven inch MacBook Airs? Or I hope you're wrong. Is there a new twelve point nine inch model, maybe with the thinner bezel and same screen size, or is there a new jumbo size model with a slightly larger screen size and the same form factor, like looking at like, you know, thirteen point seven inches or whatever? Um, I, I don't know what they're doing there. I don't think they're going to abandon the larger iPad. I, I, that would be a rare um, one and done for Apple, uh, like like the fat nano or something. Um, I, I don't I just don't see them doing it. but we haven't really heard a lot of rumors about a twelve point nine inch model, so, so I'm very curious to see what happens as someone who enjoys the larger size iPad. Here's
1: the thing to take into account, right? Apples said over and over again, and we've repeated here over and over again that Apple says their vision of the future of computing is the iPad. And I've, I've had uh, a couple, I've had a week here where I've been using the bridge keyboard for the large iPad. And mm-hmm. I've also been using that with, of course, the large iPad. And one of the things that I find about the large iPad is that even when I'm not using it with the bridge keyboard, with the accessory keyboard, that in, in landscape mode, I can touch type on that thing with my eyes closed. Right because the layout of the on-screen keyboard and the size of the on-screen keyboard is identical to that that I expect from a laptop. That works for me. The The idea of shrinking it to the 9.7 makes it just a little too difficult for me to touch type reliably. The 10.5-inch, uh, unless they can somehow make the, the size of the keys large enough, which I don't think they can because physically, how would you do that? Right. Um, it's, it's just not as easy for me to get into as the nine inch
0: Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting because the use cases can be very different. You know, are you using your iPad for reading in bed? Uh, is it mostly one-handed use? You know, are you holding it in the kitchen while you make dinner or something, you know, reading recipes or whatever? Or in my case, my iPad Pro, the 12.9-inch, is kind of a couch computer slash uh uh, streaming TV, like I have the, I have a TWC spectrum, um, and they have an app that lets me get live streaming TV on it. And so in my office, it's my office TV. I don't have to have a TV in here. Um, and, uh, you know, I use it to watch movies on an airplane and stuff like that, but it's not like something that I take into bed with me. So for those people who, you know, are, are doing those types of tasks where they want something lighter, smaller, a little more nimble, one handed device, it's not an ideal device for them, it's just too heavy, it's too large, it's too unwieldy. But for me, to use it as a laptop replacement when I want something very light and easy when I'm sitting on the couch, and like you say, you wanna be able to just type and not worry about that kind of stuff, um, I, you know, I, I much prefer the larger size. And then even if I wanna use it as a super light laptop replacement and attach you know, Apple's uh, smart keyboard to it, um, it's just easy to do. You just snap it on there and you're ready to go. And, and it's still very light, very thin, and very portable. Um, not everybody needs that use case. So if, if if they go with the 10.5 inch and decide to retire the 12.9 inch, I'm going to personally be upset because the 10.5 inch is not large enough for what I, I like. In, in fact, um, if they decided to do the same thing with the 12.9 inch and, and decrease the uh or increase the screen size with the same form factor i'd be very happy with that i think something closer to 13 or over 13 inches would be pretty cool um but my guess is that they would probably just keep the same screen size and shrink it because i think there's enough distance between 10.5 and 12.9 to still make a sizable difference but um we'll see I, I i don't know there there are just no rumors about the 12.9 inch so i'm, I'm very curious Um, as to what's going to happen. I think there was one rumor saying that it's going to be announced alongside it, but might launch a month or two later. So we might get the 10.5 inch like almost immediately at WWDC. And then we might have to wait until like July or August to get the 12.9 inch, Uh, which could make some sense. I mean, it's not going to be as big of a seller, so they may not be in as big of a rush to put it out to market. But uh, we, we don't know if it'll have a larger screen, same size screen, thinner bezels, whatever. We don't know.
1: Now, we've also got a rumor about a side-by-side comparison of the three handset sizes. So we've, we've talked about this, right? There's there's the 7S+, Plus, which is a large handset. There's the 7S that we know its current size. It's the 4.7-inch phone. And the iPhone 8 is said to be this in-betweener that has the larger screen resolution, but with because it's closer to edge-to-edge, the device itself can be a little smaller. So this story that we've got here on our site simply shows... The uh, some dummy units, and some metal uh, case molds is what it looks like to me.
0: Yeah, this gives a better idea of what the sizes are, are expected to look like. Um, the, the iPhone 8 is rumored to have a total screen area um, of 5.8 inches, even though it's supposed to have a form factor closer to the uh, iPhone 7, the 4.7 inch size. Um, and it's expected to accomplish that with this edge-to-edge screen. And So this, these um, uh, dummy units, whatever you wanna call them, molds that were created, um, give you kind of idea of how that would work. So it looks essentially the same width as an iPhone 7, slightly taller, uh, still considerably smaller than the plus size model, um, and supposedly achieves a larger total screen area. And when I say total screen area, It's believed that the device is actually gonna have two screens on it, and I'm not really sure how this is gonna work, but this is the rumor, um, that the main display is going to be a 5.2 inch OLED, and then there's going to be either part of the same display or whatever, but in terms of the operating system, another smaller area below it that's gonna serve as essentially a function row. So think like the touch bar on your MacBook Pro, but like where the home button would be on your iPhone to like have, you know, a virtual home button or something like that. Um, presumably apps will be able to take over both screens at once and do the full 5.8 inch when you're like watching a movie or something. But when you're doing like standard navigation through iOS, uh, perhaps that lower part of the screen will offer quick access to things that you might want to use. That's going to be an interesting change. Yeah, it, it uh it, It makes sense because Apple likes to do a thing where they introduce technology on one device, then bring it to another. So this concept of the touch bar on the MacBook Pro coming to the iPhone uh, is a very Apple-like thing to do. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around how that would work in practice because we're just so used to how our iPhones work. They've been the same for, you know, 10 years now. So to have a major shakeup in how it works, I mean, I could see – right you got to because apple is very much about user experience so you have to have something on their visual cue that says here's the home button here is where you put your thumb for touch id here is whatever so i see where the function bar would make sense in that respect but i'm not sure what you would use the rest of the space for like are we going to have you know quick access to things like uh, uh multitasking or or whatever I, I don't know i don't know what they would put down there you know it's it's
1: We've had, as you say, the the iOS has been about the same for forever. The bottom row has always been sort of an app dock of persistent apps, even as you slide across the rest of the interface. Right. So it is sort of a quick access bar already. The the question is, does that become something that changes based on where you're at?
0: Yeah, it's, um, like I said, I would have to think that Apple's going to give the ability of apps to use the full screen, um, and then for standard iOS navigation, you know, put icons down there for things that don't necessarily need to take up the full 5.8 inches. But it's one of those things that, um, one of the more exciting things about WWDC coming up is the fact that um, while the hardware leaks ahead of time because Apple has to outsource to manufacturing partners and assembly partners to get these devices to market, the software is still all done in-house. And so it be, can be difficult for us to really understand how these things are going to work until it's officially announced by Apple. And that's where Apple still has the ability to surprise. So remember a couple of years ago, the iPhone 6S was coming out. We knew that it was going to have uh, 3D touch or force touch. Uh, because we knew that the hardware components were in there for some form of uh, of uh, pressure sensing capabilities within the display that was leaked from the supply chain. What we didn't know was how it was going to work in terms of the interface. We had something of an idea from macOS having a force touch uh, trackpad and the Apple Watch having force touch, but we didn't really know how it was going to work in the iPhone until Apple actually announced it. Um, And so this is again one of those things, we know that Apple's gonna have the dual cameras, um, with uh, a, a uh, vertical landscape on them now instead of horizontal, we know that they're going to have an edge-to-edge display. We know that they're going to have, and when I say no, that you know, we obviously don't really know. These are just the we room. strongly suspect, we know that it's right? going to have this uh, function area below the main screen. We don't really know in practice how well it's all going to work or what it's going to do or what it's going to offer because that's all kind of software and feature-driven stuff that hasn't been announced and isn't going to leak from Apple because it's all internal and they don't have to outsource it. So as we go into WWDC and iOS 11 and then September and the iPhone launch, that's really where uh, myself as somebody who who follows this obviously every day is, is most excited. Those are the real surprises and the real secrets that Apple can kind of hit us with.
1: The next story is about Intel making Thunderbolt 3 royalty-free for manufacturers. And this is something you and I have talked about in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Where... where You know, we've talked about the difficulties of USB-C as a port because it works with USB-2, it works with USB 3.1, it works with DisplayPort, it works with Thunderbolt. And, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is when people buy the computer and they go out and they buy a Thunderbolt accessory, the cable is expensive to get a Thunderbolt 3 cable. And so they look and they buy the USB-C cable. It's got the same connectors on it. They plug it in and they wonder why it doesn't work. And so, I feel like that's kind of a problem with the USB Type-C port right. and Thunderbolt. But at the same time, the other thing is that, you know, how how do you drive adoption of Thunderbolt? We we had FireWire, um, you know, FireWire 400, and then we had a FireWire 800. And those were only ever really adopted on Apple machines and on Sony, which used a, a port for FireWire 400. The... You know, it had had development on that kept going, we could have had Firewire thirty two hundred without too big of a problem. There is I'm sure it was in development. But we didn't get that. We got off that train and got on the USB two train and the USB three train and, and display port and then Thunderbolt and all of this. So now we're in this place where we want to get Thunderbolt adoption out there so that there are more peripherals and more computers using it, so that it becomes a standard that actually takes on. Takes hold. This is this is Intel doing that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and and what makes this interesting is the underlying technology of USB 3 is still a part of the equation. So Hmm. if you were to take your Thunderbolt 3 device and plug it into a device that doesn't do Thunderbolt 3, it would still work just at the slower USB 3 speeds. Um, So in theory... Uh, everything that you get is going to work. So you can take a USB three device, plug it into your Thunderbolt three port, and it will still run it. Uh, you know, it's kind of lowest common denominator thing. But if you buy a Thunderbolt three device and you have a Mac with a Thunderbolt three port, it's going to work. Where that becomes kind of confusing. provided, you
1: get the Thunderbolt three cable.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully the accessory ships with it. But yes. Um, where this becomes additionally confusing is, even with the latest MacBook Pros and 12-inch MacBook, they're not all Thunderbolt 3 ports, so uh, you, you you want to make sure that you're plugging into the right port, uh, and, and that's a shame, but that's kind of part of the growing pains. I envision a future where Thunderbolt 3 remains uh, somewhat of a subset. Uh, most accessories aren't gonna need that much speed, uh, you will not need to, uh, you know, connect a, a thumb drive or something like that to Thunderbolt 3. The, the speed would be kind of pointless. Um, but th- for those like large um, uh, external hard drives plugged into monitors that need all the bandwidth and stuff like that, um, those are the kind of accessories where you need it. Um, I think that making the licensing free is going to help solve a problem that has been there for a while. Uh, Apple was obviously very early to adopt Thunderbolt, helped develop the technology with Intel, and it never really caught on in a meaningful way. You've had Thunderbolt 1 and 2 ports on your MacBook Pros for years, um, and the number of accessories available for them is not huge. So I think that by having the same connector and offering the you know uh, fallback to USB 3, an underlying technology, is going to help with adoption of it because people can buy with confidence knowing that it's just gonna work. Yeah.
1: Now you thinking back years and years and years ago, uh, the reason that the USB port took over the way it did when instead of serial ports was because Intel and Microsoft wrote it into the Winhex spec. Mm. You know, they they said this is what comprises a Microsoft Windows computer in the year 1998, 1999. It's going to have USB one ports. And that that spec seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside now. It's not really uh, nearly as important as it used to be. So making this royalty-free will help drive
0: adoption. You know what this makes me think of? Tell me. This makes me think of when HDTVs were first coming to market, but everybody still had like – vcrs and old dvd players that they would connect over a composite cable and even the composite cable could do a widescreen image but nobody had it set up properly you know you'd pay some guy from circuit city to come out to your place and he wouldn't even set it up properly You know, i've seen this at a a million people's places not not more recently but back when when hdtvs were first coming out nothing was set up properly and so it makes me wonder like you're gonna have some guy that goes out and buys, you know, high-end uh, uh, accessory, uh, you know, external drive, monitor, or whatever, and they get the uh, 12-inch MacBook to connect it, and it's this all this Thunderbolt 3 stuff, and it's connected via USB 3, and it's not running at full speed, or you know, they have the. Uh, Uh, the MacBook Pro uh, that has uh, non-Thunderbolt 3 ports on it and it's running at a slower speed or something like that. It just feels like one of those things where there's, there's going to be enough user confusion that even for me to explain it is difficult.
1: Yeah, buckle up. We're in for about two years of confusion, maybe three.
0: It won't be that bad, though. Most people just won't know, much like with the HDTV problem. People go, oh, look at how good the picture looks. And it's like, it looks like crap. It's all stretched out. But, I mean, I guess ignorance well, is bliss if you don't know. The, the real then, problem
1: is when it doesn't care. work,
0: right, if, when it doesn't as long as work. It works.
1: When you plug it in and something doesn't work the way you expect it should, who do you blame? You
0: don't blame the thing you just
1: bought. You're going to blame Apple.
0: Yeah, cuz like some users do, right? Some guy is going to get a corporate computer and and use the company credit card to buy all this stuff, plug it in the wrong port, but it's going to work, so he's not going to know, he's not going to care. He's not going to be checking the bandwidth on his Thunderbolt 3 accessories.
1: Um, all right. So
0: you went and
1: got to see drones. You got to play with new drones.
0: I did. Uh DJI uh who is I mean, I think it's pretty well established. That they're they're the best drone maker out there on the market today without Without question, um, held an event this week um, in Grand Central Terminal in Manhattan. And so I swung over there to take a peek at what they had to announce. Um, and I didn't really know much about what they were going to be announcing ahead of time. And uh, came away very impressed. Um, you know, they did a bang-up job with the Mavic Pro, the fold-up drone. Um, at last year it came out, and we ran a review this week. Mikey uh, took a closer look at it because... It's illegal for me to fly it in New York City, so I wasn't really the best candidate to, to review it. But he lives out in Hawaii, so we let him uh, take a take a few flights with it, and, and you can take a look at the footage. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and that thing is very competitively priced at under a thousand bucks. It looks great. It folds up, and so I was wondering, what are they going to do uh, to kind of follow up with their, you know, what is the best product on the market? Not, not only the best product on the market, but leaps and bounds beyond uh, what their competitors are doing and so they went in a very different direction uh, with a, a more personal uh, type drone that they're targeting for more mass market use for folks that uh, maybe wouldn't want to spend a thousand dollars on a drone and learn to fly it and all that but want to have something to get you know good shot of the family all together without you know holding up to take their phone to take a selfie or or whatever. Just so droney, right? So what they announced is uh, a really cool product called the DJI Spark, and it has some cool technology in it. But there are two key things that make this for for me a must-have device. Number one, it's it's very portable. Um, it is much smaller than even the Mavic Pro, which was already very small. Um, so. I mean, you could fit it in like a jacket pocket. It's that small. So for me, you know, sometimes when I go on vacation or something like that, the main selling point of the of the Mavic Pro is that I could easily throw it in a suitcase or a bag or whatever, which I couldn't do with the, the Phantom drones that they had, which are massive. Uh, this thing is even smaller. You could just take it out with you for an afternoon. Um, and the other real selling point on this thing is the price. Um, they, they hit a $499 price point, which is now approaching that level where it's like, borderline impulse buy gift. That's expensive Christmas gift. It is. Um, but it's a lot cheaper than, you know, a $1,000 for the Mavic Pro. And you got to remember only a couple of years ago, you know, the Phantom and stuff were selling for like fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars dollars So we're now getting down to a point where you're looking at mass market um, type adoption potential. And, 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 DJI did a really good job of of making the the case to sell this product, um, and the main feature that they pushed. and I know a lot of our readers scoffed at it, but I, I think that they got the wrong idea, because you got to remember what people are going to be using this for. Most people don't want to fly their five hundred dollar device off into the distance and not be able to find it, you know, uh, after they lose connection or something like that. Most people want to do something a little simpler. Um, they wanna just get some good, you know, photos of the family gathering or the barbecue or whatever, right? Look, this is this is like
1: model airplanes, right? Yeah. You you fly it up where you can see it and you enjoy the pleasure of seeing this thing that you're controlling from the ground. You You want it to take photos from above and you want them to be good photos. And you want to be able to land the thing without crashing it.
0: How many people buy model airplanes for however much money, think they're going to get into a hobby, crash it on the first try, and then never do it again? Oh, you know you
1: know who does that? The helicopter people. The model helicopters are the hardest thing in the world to fly. And everyone who gets one crashes it.
0: That it's is not ridiculous. for mass market adoption. That's what I'll try it totally out. It doesn't not. work. It goes away. So the thing that people scoffed at are are readers and commenters and stuff like that, but I think is going to be the real selling point of this, is within 10 feet of of flying, um, which I think is going to be a popular use for this device, you can just control it with gestures. So you turn it on, you toss it up in the air, it flies in front of you and looks at you, and you move your palm around, and you can do things like send it further away, bring it closer, move it up, move it down, have it take a picture, have it record a video, and you do it all with your hands without needing to get your phone out of your pocket, without needing to do anything. And so you does can it imagine follow you? It does. Yes. So you can again imagine the use case for this where Um, you want it to follow you along while you're doing something, or let's say you're just out having a picnic and you want to get a group photo. Pull it out of your bag, toss it in the air, let it fly 15 feet away or whatever it is, have it snap the photo, you're all sitting there looking good, it comes back down, you're done. You know, I think that that is going to be a very strong use case for this device, and it's going to have that gee whiz wow kind of thing where when you're out with a group and people see what you can do, they're going to go, man, I really want one of those. So I think that people that are writing off the gesture controls are kind of missing the point. I think that that is actually going to be a major selling point for this device along with the size and, and just the price. But if you want to go beyond those 10 feet, you can connect it to your phone um, and it does uh, you know, touchscreen controls with live video footage. It flies connected to your phone up to 109 yards away. Um, so pretty good distance. And you can manually control it and do all the auto follow and all those capabilities and stuff like that. And then if you really want to push it, um, it can do the capabilities of a lot of their high-end drones. And you can buy a separate controller, which they haven't given a price on yet. But a physical controller that will connect through their uh, proprietary uh, live video feed connection technology um, and allow you to really push this thing and fly it far away. Now, given the small size of it, I don't know how much I'd want to do that. I'd be concerned, you know, a gust of wind or something like that could could toss it. Um, you know, just in terms of physics at that point, uh, you, you might be running into some problems. But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, this, this device um, is... Pretty exciting and a pretty big step forward for DJI and for the drone industry in in general. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited to get my hands on this. Again, $499, and it's, they're taking pre-orders now, and it's supposed to be shipping in mid-June. Excellent.
1: We will report on that more when we have one. I wanna talk about Bedit for a minute. Bedit is the company that focused on sleep. They made version 1 and version 2, they've just announced version 3, at the same time they managed to get themselves purchased by Apple. Um, What's interesting to me here is that this is one of those rare purchases where Apple decides to purchase a consumer company versus a technology company. Mm -hmm. You know, they they typically focus on purchasing things like uh, PrimeSense or some of the others. Here, they've purchased a company that makes consumer products, and I'm not sure how they're going to incorporate this, but they've got uh, sleep data that, that is, is great if you focus on sleep. And, of course, sleep is essential to good health. If you don't sleep, you can't lose weight, you aren't prepared for the next day, all kinds of things. So it's going to be interesting to see how this fits into Apple's plans. It, it certainly fits their vision as a company that focuses on good health. But, uh, you know, are they going to continue to make the sleep sensor? Are they going to incorporate the sleep sensor into some other device? We don't know yet.
0: I have a hard time seeing Apple sell a thing that you got to strap to your bed to, to, uh, consumers to, to get sleep data. I think that they will be content to let the company operate as they do, you know, kind of like a, a file maker type thing where it's like, you guys have fun over there and then they have access to the data. Um, This is one of the things that Apple runs into when it comes to data collection. They're a little more reluctant than a company like, say, Google, who's more than happy to collect your data. Um, Apple has a bit of a more standoffish approach. So I think that this is an interesting acquisition that allows them to collect data to improve a device like the Apple Watch um, and allow sleep tracking capabilities um, in a uh, more advanced way by getting more accurate data. So there's another story that came out this week about how the Apple Watch is a best-in-class heart rate sensor, but uh, it and every other wearable device, essentially, is very bad at tracking calories burned in terms of movement. Um, And specifically, it overestimates calories burned, uh, especially when you're sitting. And that makes sense, right? Because your arm is going to be flailing around, you're going to be doing stuff, and so it's going, oh, he's moving a lot. But... You're not really burning that many calories, and so it can give you an idea that you're being more fit and more active than you are. And that's a limitation of just having a device on your wrist. There's only so much that it can do, right? The same reason that Apple is going to continue to have trouble understanding when you're standing versus when you're not. There's no real way to to get that kind of data with the technology that we have right now. And so I think that… The Beddit acquisition is something that's specifically targeting that. They can use data from a more full-featured device and then Use that to make interpretations and assumptions about the wearer and hopefully get more accurate data on how well they're sleeping and that sort of stuff. Um, you Use the larger device and then have advanced algorithms that make assumptions when it's worn on your wrist and then maybe pr- improve the watch, especially as battery life starts to get better, something that you can wear while you sleep. No, um, but no one wants to wear a watch when they're sleeping. It's uncomfortable. A lot of our readers do. They say That's, in the comments that they, that, because there are sleep tracking apps, third party apps available for Apple Watch, they say that they put their phone in do not disturb slash theater mode and they wear it while they sleep.
1: When are they charging the thing?
0: They say that they, because it charges quickly, they'll charge it, you know, when they get home from work or when they shower or something like that. I've heard from a number of people that say they do that. I don't do that. I don't like to have it on while I sleep. Yeah. Um, you, and I, I have a pretty good idea, idea of, of how well I a slept thing when
1: I <laughs> You scoff at putting the idea of a sensor on your bed. But, but honestly, the it sensor doesn't do anything elaborate. You simply, have you, have you made your bed? Great. So you pull up your fitted bed sheet. You put the sensor down. You put your fitted bed sheet down. Do it when you change your sheets. It's not a big deal. Right, I just don't care that much.
0: <laughs> I but you I know, do
1: change your sheets because, like, it yeah. would be disgusting if you didn't do that.
0: Yes, but but uh, you 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 uh, you I have a very good idea of how well I slept based on how I feel the next day. You know, like I don't need something to quantify that. There there are certain quantified self things where I just kind of go, okay, who cares? And that's All one right. of those things where I don't personally care. However, uh, for Apple looking to offer a holistic view on health. Um, right, but you don't
1: have a problem with your sleep, really. You, you, you don't. That's not one of the things that you're aware of as being an actual area of concern for you.
0: Oh, it's or, an area of concern for me. It's just that I don't need to track it. Ah, uh, I, I do. I sleep poorly, but I don't need something to quantify it. Okay. It's not like saying that I was restless last night is going to change the fact that I couldn't fall asleep. You know. <laughs>
1: Well, but it, it, when you're aware of that, you can go ahead and do things to try and, and do better the next night, and those things are going to bed at the same time every night, those things are sure. setting up the bedroom so that you don't have blue LEDs all over the place keeping you up, um, not drinking coffee after 2 p.m. kind of thing so that you don't have this ca- caffeine half-life going on through your system, you know, all the kinds of things that you can do to, to generally make sure that you do have a better night's sleep.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying that the data is useless. I'm just saying that for me, it wouldn't change my situation because it's like I know I need to get more sleep, and measuring it is not going to change that. All
1: right. Moving on IKEA. IKEA announced that they're rolling out the firmware update to their Tradfry network gateway, which intends to make its line of smart bulbs compatible with Apple HomeKit, Amazon Alexa, and Google Home. We'll see. And you say we'll see because we know from from our history here that no one has as yet been able to update an existing hardware product to turn it into HomeKit compatible.
0: Right. You, you have to have Apple's chip in there. And so unless they shipped it with the chip in there knowing that they're going to add HomeKit later, they're going to need to add an external hub in order to bridge connectivity between HomeKit and the device.
1: Right. Also – every HomeKit device has a sticker with eight digits on it so that you can add it to the uh, to the, your network securely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if there's no sticker on that, how is it going to communicate its eight-digit ID?
0: Yeah. There are, Especially
1: when it doesn't have a screen on it to do it with.
0: There are a lot of problems with this, and we've seen companies that don't really understand how HomeKit works that come out and say, yes, we're doing HomeKit, and then they go to their development team and realize, oh, we can't do HomeKit. So I don't. No. It's, I mean, IKEA is a big enough company that they're certainly capable of doing this and finding a way to do it, and I would think that Apple would want to work with them and make it happen, but uh, don't hold your breath for this to come out.
1: Yeah, I mean, they could absolutely add Alexa and Google Assistant compatibility, Yes, but um, adding compatibility with HomeKit, I'm not holding my breath yet. Separate news, Wemo Bridge, which is Belkin's product, is going to add HomeKit compatibility and to do this they're they're announcing a new product which is a bridge that connects with ethernet to your router and then will enable all of the existing wemo devices you may have around your house to now work with homekit
0: and i have more confidence in this announcement because the 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 announcement makes sense. They have to have a new bridge that has HomeKit compatibility that's coming to market. And again, Belkin is an established player. This isn't some Kickstarter. Having said that, I still wouldn't hold my breath because HomeKit announcements as we've seen time and time again don't usually pan out in the way that we expect.
1: Right. Well, well what I would say is that this one makes sense, right? We Home Wemo, for example, have been doing uh, Amazon Alexa since the very beginning. They were one of the first ones to be Alexa compatible. They have worked with Apple on a number of other projects. They, they totally understand what it is to be compatible with Apple, um, including their Thunderbolt bridges and Thunderbolt docks that we saw at CES, for example. So I'm, I would be a lot more confident in this announcement. As part of an ongoing patent licensing dispute with Apple, Qualcomm has requested a court order requiring that Apple's contract manufacturers keep paying royalty payments while the legal process goes on.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is some sort of behind the scenes, you know, politicking going on with this lawsuit here. I don't know what's going to come of it. We saw this week that the Nokia lawsuit was dropped and uh, uh, their Wythings products are going to be coming back to Apple stores and, and Apple's going to be buying some networking equipment from them and the patent dispute has been settled. So. One could hope that uh, this dispute gets resolved in in some meaningful way so we don't have to just be mired in lawsuits and we can go on to enjoying our lives, but we'll see what happens. Apple is preparing to test a 5G cellular network. Yeah, I mean, I think that's not a surprise to anybody. Um, Next generation wireless technologies are coming down the pike and Apple is going to want to endorse and embrace them because that's what they need to do to stay competitive. Yes,
1: Apple's human resources head, Denise Young-Smith, is now taking up a role as Vice President for Inclusion and Diversity.
0: Yeah, uh, this is something that uh, <laughs> upset a lot of people. I don't know why people get upset about these types of things, but uh, <laughs> I mean, having more diversity within a company um, to you know represent the customers that you are trying to sell to is uh, ultimately a good thing. And if Apple wants to, as a uh, corporations spend their money on that; they have every right to do so. So good for them.
1: Well, and it fits within Apple's vision of what they want Apple to be, right? It' not not just a company that makes these kinds of products and delivers this this you know whether it's the iPhone or their health platform or care kit for working with medical research, but it's it's these things for everyone, and they want a company that reflects that.
0: Yeah, and and I don't have a problem with that, but there are certain. Um, I won't identify any groups, but there are certain types of people that have a very serious problem with this because apparently there aren't enough problems in the world that they can get worked up over something so trivial. So there we go. That
1: seems like a very old kind of point of view.
0: It, it is. Uh, it's very you, old and tired. If you read the comments and the reactions and even uh, text messages I got some from some, from, from some friends of mine about this, uh, there are some people that – uh, see it as a, a waste of time, and they say things like just hire the best person for the job without any sort of appropriate context for culture and history and everything else that's gone on in these great United States well, of America, and we will leave it at that. You know, the, the
1: the counter to that is that if you want to find the best person for the job, you, you need to be able to look in every you know it's a very big world right america is not uh, not the world and there's a large number of people out there that that could be great engineers from other countries from other backgrounds and if you want to have the very best then you have to look in those pockets of the world you have to go that distance
0: yeah i mean a diversity of opinions and ideas and backgrounds is is uh, makes for a better community a better uh, product a better understanding of one another, you know, um, the the more that we live in silos and and separate ourselves from one another, the more, the easier it is to, to judge and condemn and and those sorts of things. And and that does not lead to good things. So, um, there's nothing wrong with having communities of people, but when we come together, um, it kind of forces us to find some common ground and whether we're making the next iPhone or whether we're just, you know, all getting along and living in a city together, uh, it's ultimately a good thing, and people that have a problem with that need to reassess their worldview. Yes. Neil Hughes, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can complain at me on Twitter at this is Neil, N-E-I-L, and you can read my stuff on Apple Insider.
1: I'm your host, Victor Marks. This has been another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast, and please send Neil text messages. We'll be back next week with more.